0: Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. My family and I have been attending Beacon for a few years, and we love how the pastors reason through the scriptures every Sunday. We love the fellowship, the kids' classes, the singing, and oh, the cafe is great. So if you're in the neighborhood, we'd love to meet you. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 10.30, or 12 noon. We are located at 65 East Williston Avenue in East Williston, New York. For more information, visit us at visitbeacon.com. See you soon. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to worship at Beacon Church on Palm Sunday. So happy Palm Sunday to you. Is that like a greeting, right? Happy Palm Sunday. I guess we don't really know what to say about it. So happy Palm Sunday and uh, really glad uh, that you are here and um, so glad that uh, the ladies are uh, taking part in helping uh, this Palm Sunday be an extra special uh, morning for us and, uh, and of course tonight as well at the coffee house. Very excited about that. So um, uh, we get to talk about, because it's Palm Sunday, we get to talk about how trustworthy God is, which is always an encouraging uh, kind of a thing, right? Psalm 22, starting in verse 4. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried out and were saved. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. So there it is, clear as day. It's sitting in the Bible, so this is good news for us. God is trustworthy. And because he's immutable, that's what the, that's what the theologians call it. He's immutable. He's unchanging in his nature and in his character and in his purpose. Uh, and so, and there's lots of verses that talk about that, right? And many of us will, will have a, quite a few of them kind of committed to memory, like God's love endures forever. That's a great one. God is the same, yes. yesterday, today, and yeah, see, this is every service. So is, is it tomorrow or is it forever? It's for me, it's forever. So I don't know what version you guys are reading, but maybe I'm maybe I'm remembering an old version. But yeah, so He's the same, yesterday, today, and forever, tomorrow. Um, <laughs> You know, and there was an older one i 'd remember hearing God does not change like shifting shadows that 's an old version that uh, I remember from my childhood so obviously God is trustworthy that 's really great news until he isn't then what until he isn't and i 'm not talking about like the kind of times you know when you are you know when, when your trust gets broken by something like you know like a car that breaks down, and now you're upset at your car, or like you have a kid that does something a little bit like you know, kind of, kind of weird, and kind of like breaks your trust a little. I heard a story. Bethany Howell, she's a woman from Arkansas, and the mother of a six-year-old girl, and they found uh, she found a $250 charge on uh, her phone, like on uh, somebody had been using her her uh, online accounts, and so she thought she was uh, hacked, and so they're starting to research it, trying to figure out what had happened. And the little girl came forward and said, actually, mom, when you were sleeping, I took your thumb and I put it on the thumbprint of the iPhone and I went shopping. So $250 later, she went, she went shopping. I'm not talking about when something, because that's actually not just, that's actually very clever. So we don't want to, you know, scold her too much for that. But, um, but you know, think about instead like a friend who's continually disappointing you. You know, regularly this happens. It makes the friendship, it makes it hard to be a friend, it makes it hard to be able to trust them because every time you trust them, something ends up happening that isn't what you expected. What happens when God is unpredictable? You know, when, when the evidence of his love isn't so apparent, when he seems erratic or distant from us, what then? Imagine you were in Israel 2,000 years ago. Israel had been oppressed by any number of foreign powers, the latest of which happened to be Rome, and So there was heavy taxation, and they were interfering with their worship life, and you know, there were difficulties everywhere you went in Jewish culture at this time because of the Roman influence or occupation. And then you begin to hear these amazing stories about Jesus. He's some sort of a miracle worker. He's feeding thousands of people. Everywhere he goes, he's casting demons out of people who have been, been tormented their whole lives. Some even say that he raises the dead. When you start to hear these stories and you realize that people are starting to whisper that maybe he's the long-promised Messiah, the anointed one. He's the Christ. You guys know, right? Like Christ isn't his last name. It's not like Jesus Christ, Robert Kelly. Like Christ is a title, right? (laughs) Title means Messiah or the anointed one. And so that's what it's saying. He's Jesus, the anointed one. He's the Messiah. People are starting to say, maybe maybe he's the Messiah. In fact, God said, this is my special son. In him, I am well pleased. Others would tell you that Jesus himself, Actually, claim to be the Messiah. He is the promised one. He's the anointed one, and he has finally come to save Israel from her oppressors. This is great news. And so, when Jesus enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, the people flock in and they can't get enough. They're laying their cloaks and they're putting palm branches down and they're just celebrating this amazing moment because finally God's Son, the Messiah, had come and he is going to save them from human tyranny once and for all. And then, just a handful of days later, Jesus is hanging on a cross, dead. How's that? How does that fit in? That wasn't the plan. Not only are their hopes and dreams dashed, but God Himself hasn't kept His promises. Many of you experienced, have, have experienced this, or maybe you're even experiencing it right now. You're going through some of these dark moments. You know, we see this all the time in little ways, and we don't even think about them because they just seem like such little things. But they're frustrations that happen in our lives, and they're the, they're things that happen that we don't expect God to be doing. Like, so it was a few months, like a couple months ago or so, I um, I started getting this, like, you know, head cold. I was sick. And I'm like, oh, this is terrible. I feel lousy. And it went on for, like, weeks. And I'm like, well, the good news is it can't go on for, like, months. So at least I'll be better when things really kind of get cranking and for Holy Week. And, you know, I got all the extra stuff. I got to just, I'm sure it'll all be cleared up. And right, God? Like because that's the plan because, like, that's how I would run Holy Week for me as a pastor. And so, and then, like, a couple weeks, like, later, um, I actually ended up, I'm I'm like, God, right, that's what we're going to do. We're going to clear the whole thing up. And God's like, actually, you know, you're going to end up with some, like, I pulled something in my back, and I got this little thing. And I'm like, on top of the head cold, like, that's a plan? Like, do you think that that's a good thing? And then, so, but good news is it was still far enough out that I'm sure everything is going to clear up because that's what God does, because that's how he should treat me Uh, because that's how I would treat me if I were God and I had all the power to heal and and timeline and all that. Like, I would do that. And then I got this incredibly nasty cough from Trevor. (laughs) He gave me this, he gave me this, like, barking kind of cough. And he says it's because of all the kissing. But, like, because, like, like, I come in, I give him a double kiss, like, the, you know, the Italian thing of, you, you know, you got to touch his hair to make him. This is the way I get work out of him. You got to keep him productive. But, and so, like, you know, this is what happens with Trevor. So, but he gave me this cough, right? And so now I'm like, God, you're going to clear the whole, like, it's just going to, so you're going to make it, you're going to go from bad to worse to worse. Like, how could you do this? Now, this is a stupid little minor example. But, you know, they cause these little frustrations because we actually know that it's it's actually the same thing that happens in things that are far more serious. It actually really does happen to us when we suffer in very significant ways. Like those who have lost a loved one, taken long before their time. Why? You know, you've been unemployed, and now it's been six months, and then it's nine months, and then it's 12 months, and, you know, things are getting really, really tight. I don't know what to do. I can't afford anything. And suddenly, you're finding your houses are, are going into foreclosure, and, like, but I had my hopes and my dreams set on there. This is where I was going to be, and this is how I was going to retire, and this is what, now those dreams are being dashed. And you put all your hope in that child because if I have the child, then there's going to be hope and there's going to be the next generation and I'm going to have a legacy and I'm going to be able to raise them and then you lose your child and you're like, this is ridiculous. God, this is not the way life is supposed to work. You go in for just an average checkup, no big deal, just going to make sure everything is okay, you feel good and you come out with that dreaded diagnosis. You know, you've got cancer, you have heart disease. You're not going to see long life and happy days. You're going to see a lot of suffering, a lot of anguish. It's yours, guaranteed. What do you do? Where is God? How come he doesn't care? Where is this amazing healing power that I hear about? Times like this, what are we to do? Would you open a Bible to Habakkuk chapter 1, starting in verse 1, Habakkuk 1, 1. Stay open in the Bible, please, because we're going to be in and out of it for the remainder of our message here, and uh, they're spread into the seats around you, and you can use your app, whatever. This is one of those tiny little books, and he's an interesting little prophet, because I'm not a little prophet. I don't know if he was little. He was probably a normal-sized prophet. But it's a little book. It's three little chapters. And what's neat about him is most prophets took a message from God, and they took the message to the people, from God to the people. That's not what Habakkuk does. Habakkuk is actually taking the plight of the people, and he's bringing a message before God. There's a dialogue that goes on in this book. And what we find from Habakkuk is that we can ask God, what is going on? We can ask God, because that's what Habakkuk did. A little bit of background. This is, say, 600 B.C., so 2,600 years ago or so. Things were actually starting to look pretty good for the people where Habakkuk was living, he was living in the southern kingdom of Israel. The northern kingdom had already fallen, had been destroyed by the Assyrians, but the southern kingdom was experiencing a bit of a revival, like in in every way. There was economic prosperity; things were kind of up and to the right for many of them. Things were looking good. There was even a bit of a spiritual uh, reformation that was going on for a while there, and so that was looking promising as well. And Habakkuk had seen these things at the nation that, that it was the name, uh, It was called Judah, Judah, the southern kingdom of. Israel. They were doing pretty good. And then Habakkuk saw that, that things started peaking and then eventually declining. They weren't going so good anymore. They were still making money. They were still economically uh, in good, uh, prosperous. But the spiritual revival began to wane. In fact, people began turning away from God. They began using their wealth selfishly. They started living immoral. They were forgetting the poor They were oppressing the foreigner. There was widespread injustice throughout the land. And Habakkuk is sickened by it. He's so frustrated that he's got to see this whole big sweep of things going well and now this decline in culture. And it was into this culture that this little book was written The book itself is structured in a back and forth way, which is really neat because there's a dialogue going on here. Habakkuk asks a question, God responds, Habakkuk responds, God responds, and they go back and forth. And you see, we get to ask God. Look at verse one. The prophecy that Habakkuk the prophet received, how long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen, or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Habakkuk is upset, he is frustrated. How long? But you don't listen. Have you ever been in that place frustrated that God refused to show up when you needed him to show up? That's what he's saying here. Why aren't you showing up? How long am I going to have to wait for you to do what you said you were going to do? He has doubts. You don't save. You said you were going to save, but you're not saving. He's questioning God's goodness. You're making me look at injustice, he says. You're tolerating wrongdoing. He's really accusing God in a way of creating a miserable world. Saying, what is this? Oh, oh look, at, look at how the wrongdoers thrive and the righteous continue to decline. How could you design a world like this? Habakkuk is coming to God with an authentic honesty. And we can too. This is nearly an invitation to us. Because God knows that there are going to be tough things that we don't understand. And he lets us come to him. And lay it out before him. And this is a great gift. However. However, we we won't always like or understand God's response. Sometimes God gives us a very painful response. Look at Starting in verse 5, this is God's response to Habakkuk. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I am going to do something in your days that, would, that you would not believe even if you were told. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. It goes on like this for some time. Habakkuk's like, what? You're doing what? Wait a second. So you've got, I, I thought we were talking about Judah and how they needed like to repent and come back to you. And you're talking about the Babylonians? How did these two things intersect? This isn't the conversation we were just having. Habakkuk is stunned that God is going to be raising up one of the most Brutal, self-seeking nations that the world has seen, an empire gone mad, that's going to steamroll through the area, supplanting numerous empires and leading to the destruction of Israel. And Habakkuk says, look in verse 12, he says, Lord, are you not from everlasting My God, my Holy One, you will never die. You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? I mean, this was really bad news. God's telling him, listen, I'm going to do something worse than anything you could have imagined. You think it's bad. You don't know what bad is, but you will, but you will. This was going to be the end of their prosperity, their economic prosperity. It was going to be the end of their political autonomy. It was going to be more, there was going to be more wickedness in the land, not less wickedness in the land. The walls of Jerusalem are going to be torn down. The temple leveled. This was an end to the way of life that they knew. God says, it's coming. I'm bringing it. It's, it's, you, can, you just get a hint of it. Like, so it, let's say it was back in the day and you were praying to God, and you're like, God, I really, the nation, our country, you know, it, we, we seem to be going off in some pretty good directions, but now I see these other things and maybe we're not, and, and I'm worried, Lord, that, you know, the country isn't going to do good, and I, I need you to help us. I need a revival. I need you to, to save our country. And God says, Well, here's my plan. I'm going to raise up a group of extremists, some zealots, and they're going to take some airplanes and they're going to make them into missiles and they're going to blow up buildings and kill lots of people. And you're going to be like, wait, this doesn't, I, that's, I, it's not exactly how I saw this conversation going. How could you possibly allow that to happen? A people more wicked than the people that you're punishing? How could that, how does this even make sense? And yet God says, this is exactly what I'm going to do. Trish Candia, she said it like this, in scripture, God's people do not always experience God as predictable. God is more likely, it seems, to surprise us and shock us. We ask him for one thing, he gives us another. How can we trust a consistently unpredictable God who continually confounds our expectations? How do you trust a God who makes a bad situation worse? Lots of writers talk about this, but there are really, you can think of it as three stages that a mature Christian will often go through. Three stages. And I think of it in terms of leaning, staggering and resting. So leaning on God, you lean on God. And what does this look like? It means, so You're imagine you're not a follower of Christ yet. I know like 30% of you are not yet Christians who are at Beacon, because we've done surveys and we know. So we know like 30% of you. Let's say you just come to faith now, or let's say you've come to faith in the last year or two. And so you're a, a young Christian, And what you're doing in that stage is you're learning to lean on God. And so for whatever you need, you're bringing it to him. And, and you know, you're going to say spiritually you're going to lean on him and physically you're going to trust him and spiritually, I mean, and economically you're going to be kind of reaching out to him. And you're going to be asking God to continue to do this work in your life. And that's great. That's what you need to be doing at that stage in your journey. You need to be leaning on God, learning to depend on him rather than on yourself. This is a great part of the early days. It's a very exciting time in the early days of Christianity for many, many people. It's as if, you know, when God does correct us in those days, we're okay with it. We're okay if he challenges us because we're going to be a better version of ourselves. And we know that. And so because we see kind of the end from it, we're like, all right, God, that's what I really want from you. And I'm really glad we're doing this together. But then something can happen because you see so far you haven't had to dig deep. So far, you haven't had to, ha- had to really grow up in faith. You're just kind of nibbling on the edges of Christianity at that point. The next stage is you stagger. You stagger before God. Because then God shocks us with some turn of events, some tragedy or circumstance, and our faith gets disoriented. James Dobson, in a book called uh, titled When God Doesn't Make Sense, he said, There is no greater distress in human experience than to build one's entire way of life on a certain theological understanding and then have it collapse at a time of unusual stress and pain. A person in this situation faces the crisis that rattled his foundation. Then he must deal with the anguish of rejection. The God whom he has loved, worshipped, and served turns out to appear silent, distant, and uncaring in the moment of greatest need Do such times come even to the faithful? Yes, they do. Although we are seldom willing to admit it within the Christian community. That's heartbreaking that we can't admit this within our own Christian community. Who better to understand and to help us through these kinds of staggering moments Maybe it's personal suffering or maybe it's the fall of some great mentor you respected or some church leader or maybe you're studying and there's some question that comes up and it rises out of the the scriptures and you disagree with the way that God has chosen to run his world and his universe and his laws and the things that he values and the things that you value, you find out that they don't line up and it creates some of this dissonance for you. And ultimately, ultimately, it leads you to having your faith challenged, maybe broken. Maybe you'll drop out of church or you'll withdraw from Christian fellowship and you'll no longer pursue your relationship with God. This happens more times than we would care to admit. Uh, a friend of mine, it was uh, a really good friend some years ago. He was uh, the every sign of the mature Christian. Uh, he was uh, devout, he was uh, expressive in his worship, he was intellectually wired into kind of that intellectual bent of Christianity, that was kind of his thing, and uh, it was, he was great in so many ways, a real, a, a real uh, disciple maker for others and a, a great emerging Christian leader in so many ways. The thing is, his, he came from a Jewish background and his father continued to reject Christianity. And so he'd share with him many, many times and tell him, Dad, you got to accept Christ. You got to accept Christ. You know, the Bible says you got to accept Christ. It's his only way. Like Jesus is the only way. He is the Jewish Messiah. You got to accept him. Dad, his dad got older and older, and he refused. And he died actively rejecting Christ. He refused to accept him. What is my friend supposed to do? How do you reconcile this? He knows what his beliefs are, he knows what his theology states, he knows what the Bible says. He wants to spend an eternity with God in heaven. But now he's wondering whether his dad is ever going to be there. He can't be. He's rejected Christ. What can he do? He left the faith. Couldn't live in that tension and in that pain. He decided to abandon. He came up with all sorts of reasons why now suddenly he realized that Christianity was, wasn't true and it was fake and all of this kind of stuff. But any, for anyone, any outside observer could see what had happened. He was staggering. And he staggered away from God. But you don't have to stagger away from God. You can actually use this, these disruptive kinds of events to learn to rest upon God, to rest upon him. And we learn to trust in whatever God is doing. Not trust that he'll do what we want him to do, but we learn to trust in whatever he is doing. No matter what it is. And this kind of faith, it sees through the, the current circumstances. And it anticipates something greater on the other side. You see, it doesn't get blinded by what it sees. But it sees past those circumstances. Because you know you don't always understand every situation, right? We're limited. We see this much of a picture. God sees it all. And he's put all of these things in motion. But the little sliver of it that we see, we, we don't always see well. I heard a uh, story about a guy, he, uh, he was trying to be a good Samaritan, so there was like a, a, a woman, she was at a gas station, and uh, her car wasn't near the pumps, and um, she's out behind her car, like, pushing it. And so he's like, you know, he's all excited, he's going to be, you know, the hero, he's going to play the hero, and so he pulls his car in, he parks his car, and he runs over to help her with her car. And so he j- runs up behind her, he starts pushing the car, It's not moving, it's he's pushing the car, and she kind of looks at him, and looks back, and looks at him, and she's like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm, I'm helping you push your car to the pump. And she says, I, I'm stretching for a run. <laughs> what are you, what you're doing here, weirdo? You know, she's just sitting there. Because you don't always see things right. Now imagine how that is for the cosmic scale of what God is actually doing in the world. We don't always see the circumstances and the situations correctly. So we got to rest upon God instead. So when God seems unpredictable and untrustworthy, It is time for us to push deeper in, not stagger away from him, not get shallow in our understanding, but to push deeper. We push deeper into prayer. So start by laying your heart out before God. Bring your hurt and bring your frustration. Bring your heartache. Bring your anger. Bring it right before him. He is a big God. He can handle it. Go deeper into prayer and lay these things out just like Habakkuk did. Lay them out before God. Go deeper into prayer. And then go deeper into the past. Go deeper into the past. Habakkuk remembers in chapter 3, and he doesn't go just back to his day. He goes back to the early days of the Jewish nation. When they were in Egypt and when they were slaves and God's power and the plagues and their their, their being saved from slavery and their deliverance into the promised land. He goes back because sometimes in the midst of it, even the Israelites were grumbling and complaining. They couldn't see what God was really doing in the Exodus, you know, under Moses. But in hindsight, you can see. And if you have enough years between you and it, you get to see sometimes what God was doing. You push back in, you go deeper into the past and you recount who God is and what he has been doing for his people. And that memory of God's faithfulness, it helps us hold on to a better future. Then we go deeper into trust. This is one of the most heart-wrenching prayers in the scriptures. It's Habakkuk chapter three, verse 16. He's just heard what God is about to do to the people. And this is what he says. I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines. Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food. Though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls. You can imagine what this would sound like for us today. He'd be saying, you know, I can no, though I can no longer enjoy the good things in life. And though my future is now unsure, I've lost my retirement accounts, and I I can't work any longer. There's nothing left for me to do for me and for my family. My savings are gone, all wiped out. I have no clothes in my closet. I have no food in my refrigerator. This is what he's telling us, and he says, and look at what he says in verse 18. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord doesn't matter what else happens. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He is trusting that the unpredictability will be proven in the end to be utterly consistent and good. He's going deeper into trust. And he goes deeper into patience in Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 3. God says, for the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. You didn't know God said that first, right? Wait for it. That was God. He said it right here. Wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. Though it linger, wait for it. This means you've got to go deeper into patience because God is telling Habakkuk to wait for it But Habakkuk never sees it. What he sees is the destruction. He never sees the nation restored. He never sees the promised Messiah who was to come. He never sees how Israel is going to recover from this horrific turn of events. When he dies, Israel as a nation seems dead. When he's talking about patience, God is saying, listen, you need to wait even for things you may never see. You need to say, there is a distant future, and from that vantage point, things will be made right. And he can say that because, of course, in part he was he was a prophet, right? And so prophets see things often on, on multiple levels. And I think what Habakkuk was doing was he was seeing things on two levels here. I'm not even I don't even know how much of it he saw, but he saw, he was certainly able to articulate things that we now, in hindsight, understand because he went deeper into hope. Look at look, and this is this is a really I, I love this is a fascinating little verse for me. It's chapter three, verse thirteen. He says, "You came out to deliver your people." That's, a, that's, that's our hope, right? That we get delivered. To save your anointed one, you crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. With his own spear, you pierced his head. When his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though about to devour the wretched who were in hiding, you trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. Now, no doubt he sees what happened to Nebuchadnezzar and the nation of Babylon, He's saying, look at our anointed, our king at the time, you're going to have to save him because the anointed is a term for the, the king of Israel as well. So the nation needed their king and, and God was going to save his people and he was going to save the king by, by destroying the king of the land, the leader of the land of wickedness. He says, you crushed him, you stripped him from head to toe. And he says, he turned your own spear on him. And so Nebuchadnezzar, of course, ultimately in the Babylonian empire was defeated and so this prophecy is certainly about that day, no doubt. He was the, the leader of the land of wickedness, for sure, and he was defeated. And, and how was it that, remember what it said here, his own spear? When, with his own spear you pierced his head? Well, this actually did take place. They, they say that it was his, the advisors of the Babylonian king that had actually had a silent, bloodless coup they had turned on him. So his own, his own fighting machine turned on him. Remember how Egypt, you know, they had the chariots, and their chariots are actually what, what was so threatening about them as a nation, but it was the chariots that actually ended up destroying them in, in the, the Red Sea, right? They got split. Their, chari- their, their chariots got stuck, and then the water came crashing in. God turns their weapons against them. He does this. He did it in, in, to Babylon as well. And so you say, well, that certainly was the prophecy that, that Habakkuk was seeing. But, but you can't help, I, could, I know you're reading it, you can't help but see that there's something beyond that as well. He's speaking, I think, of a day that was still yet to come. I think this prophecy has another fulfillment because he says, you came out to deliver your people to save your anointed one. How do we not think about Christ when we read about the anointed one? I mean, it's, remember, it's in his title, it's his last name, right? It's Christ the anointed one. And so when the people gathered up on Palm Sunday, that's what they were doing, right? They all gathered up and they said, look, the Messiah, the anointed one, he's going to save us from our enemies. Then you keep reading through and you say, yeah, but he crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. But, was, but you see what they missed was he wasn't going after the Romans. He was going after the true leader of the land of wickedness, the enemy of God, Satan, the destroyer, the deceiver. That was his real target. You see, we thought we, they thought they were going to be saved from human tyranny, but they were going to be saved from spiritual tyranny. And not just for their people and for that generation, but for all who would trust in Christ. That was that. It was Satan who was going to be stripped from head to foot. And how was he going to do it? With his own spear, you pierced his head. And I think this is just such a brilliant insight from the scriptures because what's the spear that Satan uses against us? What's his weapon It's the power of death. It's our sin that leads to physical and spiritual death, which ends in our separation from God. That's the spear that Satan uses against us. And so how is it that the anointed one, Jesus, uses the the spear of Satan against him? Well, he does. He uses death against him. Because when Christ was crucified, everybody in his day saw it as an ultimate defeat, of an unpredictable, untrustworthy God. But of course, it was in his death that salvation was opened up to every one of us. It was actually through Satan's own tool. His own spear had been turned against him and bought our salvation. His death for us, his righteousness, now ours, our sin being killed on that cross, meeting the death that we deserved. This is a prophecy about the anointed one who came on Palm Sunday, who gave his life. See, this is why you can press deeper into hope because it's not simply about hoping in something that may take place in the future. For us, it's already in the past. We're awaiting its fulfillment now. We can press deeper into hope because we have the sacrifice of Christ beating once and for all the leader of the land of wickedness and stripping him from head to toe and giving us the hope of eternal life. So it doesn't matter what it is we're going through. It doesn't matter the circumstances and the suffering because there is nothing that we are going through now that can ever compare to the glory that will be ours. That's the promise of the scriptures that no light and momentary sufferings will compare because the, the leader of the land of wickedness has been defeated by the anointed one. We're gonna take just a few moments and uh, we're gonna be worshiping uh, with a song and the ladies are gonna come back up and they're gonna lead us in a song. And um, as they do, I just want us to pray and ask that God would meet us in this moment where we're at, draw us ever closer to himself. So let's just, let's pray. Lord, I'm asking that you would do a work that only you can do. Father, our our hearts are often fickle. We come to you, Lord, and we expect good days. And when we get them, we sing your praises, we sing hallelujah, we say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We shout for joy as long as we see you working in our favor the way we understand it and what we want from you. And yet, Lord, you say, that's just not the way things work. That you will often do things and work in ways that we, just, we don't get. We don't see the end game. Father, I pray that you would give us the humility we need to press deeper into you. You've already proven your great love to us through your son, through his death. And you've guaranteed a victory for all who will trust in him. Lord, let us press deeper into him deeper into the one who knows what it means to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To feel separation from the Father, to feel the distance in the Godhead, the disruption that took place when sin was put to his account. Lord, he knows, he understands. May we press deeper into this anointed one. Help us now, Lord, even now, see you, to experience you, to trust you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.